I mean, listen, I wrote the book to elevate people's anxiety. I, I wanted to elevate people's anxiety. You know, I, I think that our society is all about making people feel better. And, and I think um, it's, 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 it's not dealing with discomfort. It's very uncomfortable to actually think about what might be causing your children's stress. It makes people feel uncomfortable. Uh, it makes you have to reflect on what you may be doing as a parent that may be causing your child pain. And so, you know, that's uncomfortable. In today's episode, we talked to Erica Kotmazar, who is a psychoanalyst, and we talk about the importance of a mom being there the first three years of a child's life um, and how they develop secure attachment with the child, which is super important for regulating emotions and stress and just learning how to actually live as an adult in life. Um, And we also talk about if you cannot be there the first three years, the best alternative, um, like having your husband stay with the kids or a nanny versus daycare. So she gives her opinion on that. And then we also discuss some of the myths of daycare and we get into some personal parenting advice that she gives to me on discipline. So I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Being Different. Um, I am super excited today. I have Erica Komisar with us, and she is a clinical social worker, a psychoanalyst, a parent coach, and author. She's got 30 years of experience in the private practice. She works to alleviate pain from individuals who suffer from depression, anxiety, eating, and other compulsive disorders by helping them live better lives and have richer, more satisfying relationships. She assists them in achieving their personal and professional goals and living up to their potential. Um, so I am super duper excited. I read your book and I actually, I heard you first on a different podcast and then I went and bought your book after that. But um, your book is called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Um, so would you mind to tell us kind of what led you to writing that book? How did you get to doing that? Well, I was seeing an uptick in me- mental health issues in younger and younger children. So uh, children were being diagnosed with things like ADHD, um, behavioral issues, uh, early signs of aggression, even depression and anxiety at such an early age. Um, and in my practice, I was seeing that connected to the absence of uh, an attachment figure in their lives at a very early age. And um, most of the time, that's the mother. Um, and, and you know, I, I felt that people needed to really understand the importance of the first thousand days of a child's life in terms of healthy and secure attachment. Uh, we don't talk enough about that. We don't really, I think most people don't even know what it means. I think if you ask most mothers, they'll say, Oh, I was six weeks. I was bonded with my baby. My baby is now healthily attached. And, you know, and they think then I can go back to work and everything's fine. And I can be separated from my baby for eight or 10 or 12 hours a day. And then my baby's still attached. And it doesn't work that way. Um, and so I wanted mothers to really understand that they were not just emotionally necessary to babies in the first uh, three years, but also biologically important in the first three years. That's really, um, I was going to say cool, but it's not cool. I guess it's kind of sad that you were seeing so many people like that. And I think the reason why your book hit home with me so much is I probably would be one of the people that's bringing my kid to you, um, which makes me so sad. And when I read your book, I'll be honest, I felt like 
really guilty and kind of convicted about the way that I have chosen to do things um, as a mom. And so basically I was one of the moms that went back to work immediately. And even though I worked from home, I was in the house. I always had nannies and babysitters and we've, we've done daycare. We've done every single childcare form that you can do and nothing really worked. So I was pretty, although I was present in the home, I was pretty absent from my son for the first three years of his life. And now we are seeing a lot of consequences of that. Like, um, you know, in preschool, he was having to go to the principal's office at three years old for, you know, hitting another kid or something like that. And so it was obvious to me at first, I was like, well, he just needs more discipline. They can't spank him. He's a kid that needs to be spanked. Like this is not working. And then finally it became obvious to me, like actually what he needs is me, his parent to be a parent. And that's a tough pill to swallow. So anyways, your book was helpful in making me understand it from more of a scientific perspective, I guess you could say. So I hope that your book is helpful to other people and maybe our conversation can encourage them to pick it up and maybe see some things that I have. So um, the first thing I wanted to talk about was some of the stats that you laid out in your book that were just incredibly alarming to me was one of them was that um, the CDC noted that there 11% of children between four and 17 in the U S have been diagnosed with ADHD and two thirds are treated with Ritalin and Adderall. And that just seems like a huge number to me. Like when I was a kid, I remember like some kids were being put on Ritalin, but not many. It was only like the obvious troublemakers, but now this seems like a lot of children. Is that what, what you're saying in your practice is just n- normal kids or just the troublemakers? So, you know, what we know is that ADHD is, is not necessarily a disorder as much as it is a reaction to uh, stress. It's a stress reaction. Um, and I think we don't want to think about that. We want to call it a disorder. In fact, there was a whole movement to take the D off. So it's no longer a disorder, that it's, um, it's a symptom. It's a sign. It may be, in fact, a good sign because it says, huh, well, it could be that my child is feeling uh, stress and they're in a fight or flight. In this case, it's the flight part of fight or flight. Uh, flight being um, the fleeing causes you to move quickly. It causes you to be distracted. It's, it's basically, think of it like your stress-regulating part of your brain in in a vigilant mode. And and so if we think of it that way, uh, then we work backwards and we start thinking of reasons and causes and motivations. But when we call it a disorder, we just want to medicate it, right? I mean, if Mm -hmm. it's a disorder, we go get medication for it as opposed to, you know, I mean, the other thing that I will tell you, which is a phenomenon of what's happening is uh, today is that children are supposed to be, particularly little boys, are very active. Um, They're supposed to be um, incredibly physical, incredibly active. And so what we've also done is that we've created an educational system uh, that um, expects children at a very young age to do the unexpectable and to do what is unrealistic for children, which is sit quietly in circle time, particularly little boys, uh, Mm -hmm. under the age of three, Uh, who in the past weren't even in school. I mean, the idea that children aren't supposed to be even in school till four years of age. I mean, when I was growing up, we didn't go to, quote unquote, nursery school or preschool until we were four. And then it was for 
uh, two or three hours a day, three days a week. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it was just to prepare you for kindergarten, you know. So we have created a system that supports everyone going to work. Mothers, fathers, everybody can go away. And children are thrown into a system which expects them to be like little grownups. So you have that going on, which is too many children are being diagnosed with ADHD who don't have ADHD. And then you have the children who are responding in a stressful manner to being too early left by their parents, uh, put into group care situations, and not being attended to emotionally as well as physically. So that will cause a child to go into a a stress mode. Yeah, and it makes total sense if you think about it. Um, uh, One quote that I really liked from your book was, we see extensive discussion in the media about the needs of working parents, but the subject of children's needs is noticeably missing from the conversation. But when you look at these stats, like clearly our kids are screaming at us, like something is not right with what's happening right now. They just can't tell us mm-hmm. like I'm stressed and probably not securely attached to you. And so they just act out. That's what I've seen in my son, at least. Um, but the other stats that were super alarming to me were um, in 2011, the CDC noted a 400 percent increase of prescriptions for antidepressant meds to children over the age of 12 since 1988, like 400%. That's insane. Um, it's more than that now. It's more, that's an old figure now. That's it's, it's actually much more. Yeah. That is crazy. And so in your book, I'm, I'm a banker by trade. And so I don't know anything about psychology. Um, but I was reading about how you were talking about anxiety and stress, um, and depression and stress. And so I, can't help but think that, yes, what you're hitting on is absolutely related uh, to these numbers. And these children just don't know how to deal with it, right? Is that why Mm -hmm. they just keep putting them on all these antidepressants all the time? And the parents don't want to get down to the root issue or the doctors don't want to get down to the root issue. And so I guess medicating is like the easiest thing to do so that we can all just go back to work and live our lives. Um, and I did that, so I, I'm not calling anybody out, and I'm calling myself out on it. Um, but the other numbers that were crazy to me is in younger children, the number of psychiatric disorders rose 19%. And then according to the Agency for Healthcare Research, more than 25 million Americans suffer from eating disorders and hospitalizations for children 12 years and under have increased 119% in the last decade. Yeah. Um, so I don't. I just feel like these things that – you noted are rising exponentially way faster than your generation or my grandparents' generation or anything like that. And that's, if we don't do something, these numbers are going to be through the roof or everybody's going to be like dead, you know, with, or not functioning. And so it's just really scary actually. Yeah. I mean, listen, I wrote the book to elevate people's anxiety. I I wanted to elevate people's anxiety, you know, I, I think that our society is all about making people feel better. And, mm-hmm. and I think um, it's, 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 it's not dealing with discomfort. It's very uncomfortable to actually think about what might be causing your children's stress. It makes people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, it makes you have to reflect on what you may be doing as a parent that may be causing your child pain. And so, you know, that's uncomfortable. And so we avoid discomfort as parents. And then the medication is a way to help your children avoid discomfort. And 
I, I think the idea is, um, you know, the medication is there in very emergency and rare situations, but we're over utilizing it and not really looking at the origins of things. You know, we've become a society that doesn't want to look at the origins of things. Yeah, uh, We just want to deal with things in a very surface way. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. We just want to treat the symptoms and not the root cause. One thing right. in your book that was, um, I guess, hit home to me was when you're like, people don't really want to look at their babies. And that seems like silly to say, but I've with my second child, Charlie, um, my daughter, when she cries now, I actually like try to like stare at her face. And with Mac, I would always be like, you're fine. You're fine. Like be tough. Get up. You're fine. Like everything's fine. And with her, I try to like look at her and sometimes she's being dramatic or something like that. But now I can see sometimes like by, since I know her face better, I've paid more attention to it. I can, I feel like today even she was crying and I was like, I think she's cutting another tooth. And before, like with Mac, I would have been like, he's fine. He's fine. Like I wouldn't have even studied his face. And so that was kind of an interesting point in your book that I think that you're 100% right on. People just don't want to sit and look at pain because it's uncomfortable for them, not just the child that's in pain, but for themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that can be passed down generationally, meaning if we are uncomfortable with pain, then we pass down to our children that that they can they can't deal with pain and they pass down to their children that they no longer can deal with pain. It's something that is called generational expression. Right. So the ability to tolerate some discomfort and work through discomfort with kids Um and work through our own uncomfortable feelings. I mean, guilt is, I think you said the book caused you to feel guilty. It caused a lot of people to feel guilty. And from my perspective, I don't see guilt as a terrible feeling. I see it as a signal feeling like pain, yeah. which makes you reflect. And reflecting is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. Because it makes you think and it makes you have to evaluate and it makes you maybe make a different decision than you would have otherwise made. Yeah. And I, that's what it did for me. It was, it's, um, you feel guilty and I think a lot of people don't want to feel it. And so they just brush things aside and go on to the next thing and then it festers. But for me in that situation, I was like so upset reading the numbers and seeing the issues that we're having with my son. And then I was like, well, I'm not just going to be upset and then try to keep finding a new nanny to solve my problems. Like I'm going to have to leave my job, but it was very difficult to do. But if I hadn't felt the guilt, then I wouldn't have been pushed to actually make a change in my life, which is what our family needed. Mm -hmm. So um, I think you're right. It's, it's a good thing in some cases. Um, Why do you believe personally that all of these things are happening with the stats that I just listed off from your book? Well, again, if we're talking about very young children, I think that uh, we live in a very stressful world. And I think that stress is getting passed down to our children. You know, the point of my book wasn't to to say that women uh, can never can never work. Mm-hmm. Uh, although that's the way the book was interpreted. It's interesting. I think because of the title or because that's what people want to read into it. Right. The book actually talked about the importance of prioritizing uh, that time with your children above everything else. So right. it may mean that if you have to work to make a living, you make certain decisions, better decisions that prioritize your children. Um, you know, for instance, you know, that you are not using devices when you are home, for instance, that you come straight home and uh, don't go out at night. You know, if you're going to work, then you that that evening time belongs to your children. Um, 
you know, things that, you know, there's some women who have to work, you know, there's some people who for financial reasons must work. They're single mothers, you know? So this wasn't a book about, um, you know, judging women who have to work. It was a book to get everyone to reflect about, are we doing the best by our children? Are we really prioritizing them? Are we really uh, prioritizing them? Or are we giving it lip service, but really more self-centered? And I think we're a very self-centered world. I think think everybody has been told since the 1960s that what matters is me. I matter, my ambition, my drive, my goals, me, 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 me. Mm-hmm. And it's affected marriages. It's affected our relationship with our children. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 it isn't like that. I mean, if we want to have healthy relationships and we want to have healthy children, it requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice. Um, and it's not forever. It's not forever sacrifice. It's, you know, in, in the case of very young children, you know, incrementally children need us, but they need us a little bit less or differently as they get older. But when they're very young, we are their entire universe. We are their entire universe. They are so incredibly dependent. I think as mammals, we um, we have children that are more dependent for a longer period of time than any other mammal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason for that. Right. It's pretty incredible and cool if you think about it. But yes, a lot of sacrifice is required. And I think, I don't know if it's the media or what selling this lie, but like as long as you buy your kids enough stuff and give them enough material things and the best schools and the best nannies, then you're doing a good job. But for me, that hasn't worked out because I did that. And I could see like my son needed me. Um he could have all the toys and clothes in the world and the best schools and daycares and whatever, but that's not what he needed. So yeah. it's sad to me that that's what I think the messaging that a lot of people get right now. And I feel like also it's sad that like, I don't know why, but most employers expect you to go back to work within six weeks or if you're lucky, 12 weeks. And when you go back to work, you basically have to pretend like you don't have a child. And that's sad to yeah. me too. So. You know, that was the other reason I wrote the book is I was trying to get policy changed in this country. You know, I, I go to speak in the UK. I go to speak in Sweden. I'm, I'm constantly being asked to speak on um, on policies in other countries. But our country cares so little about this issue. I mean, I know that Biden tried to, you know, get through um, a paid leave act. But even that was just a drop in the bucket. I mean, paid leave should be for at least a year and it should be fully paid leave. And after that, it should be supplemented like it is in other countries where women can make different choices. But we do not value mothering. We do not value mothering. And I don't care what politician pays lip service to family values, family values, family values, either party. It's a bunch of baloney. They don't give a shit, excuse me, about family values. Because family values would mean that every woman in this country has access to a full year of paid leave. Six weeks is nothing. Your baby hasn't even woken up at six weeks. Mm -hmm. No, I 100% agree. Um, Can you explain what the difference between secure and insecure attachment is and um, why that's so important to our kids in like the first year of their life? 
So secure attachment lays down the foundation for mental health uh, going forward, meaning the ability for children and adolescents to become more resilient to stress is based on having that first three years of secure attachment. So as I said, many people confuse bonding with attachment. Bonding is, you know, I'm in the hospital, my baby opens their eyes, I connect with my baby, I breastfeed. Uh, we're, we're attached to one another. The truth is that's called bonding, Mm -hmm. right? Sort of like you've heard how ducklings bond with their mothers and imprinting and they follow. It's like imprinting. Yeah. Attachment is, um, a process of it's, it's, it's a process that happens in the first three years of constancy. It's when as a baby, you know, that your primary attachment figure is going to be there physically and emotionally to soothe you when you're in distress from moment to moment for the first three years. Mm -hmm. And as a baby moves from infancy to toddlerhood, they start to explore more and they start to do something called emotional refueling. So in the first year in other parts of the world, mothers carry babies on their bodies. They wrap them on their bodies and those babies don't cry. There's studies to show that the babies in other parts of the world don't cry in the first year. Whereas babies in the Western world cry all the time. Yeah. It's a very obvious difference because we don't believe in carrying them on our bodies for the first year because it interrupts our time right. and our bodies. And this is my body and it's all about me. Mm-hmm. So the concept that um, if they're on your body, they feel secure, they feel safe, you're buffering them from stress. Then once they start to toddle and walk around, they're doing this thing called emotional refueling. They're exploring but they're coming back to touch base with you and get a snuggle or looking back at you and then going out and exploring again. And it's that process of constantly experimenting with separation, Mm -hmm. but knowing your attachment figure is there that gives children the courage while they still feel safe to take risks. Mm -hmm. That is the basis of secure emotional attachment. And so if you have a kid who is not securely attached, um, that's when you see them crying more often and freaking out when you leave and things like that. Correct. Yeah. They'll either, well, there's different kinds of insecure attachment as I write about in my book, there's secure attachment. And then there's a various number of uh, insecure attachment disorders. So one is called avoidant attachment disorder. When your baby, when you come home, won't look at you. Right. doesn't want to have anything to do with you. seems dissociated. We'll go to anyone. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, has discrepant attachment, meaning they'll go to anyone for comfort. And that's not good. People think, oh, isn't that wonderful? My baby will go. No, 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 no. Your baby's supposed to go to you for comfort. Yeah. So if they're indiscriminately going to others, that's that's called avoidant attachment disorder. Ambivalent attachment disorder is when your baby clings to you for dear life and won't let you go and won't let you ever go, right? Um, and then there's disorganized attachment disorder, which is when Babies have no clear strategy to deal with, you know, avoidant and ambivalent are clear strategies. It's the way they always deal with it. If they have no clear strategy, then they cycle between strategies. So if you come home and you've been away for a long time, first they'll avoid you, then they'll cling to you, then they'll slap you in the face, then they'll avoid you, then they'll... It's, it's kind of a crazy making mix of reactions. Mm-hmm. And that's what we call disorganized attachment disorder. Avoidant attachment disorder is connected mostly to depression later on. Ambivalent attachment disorder is connected to anxiety later on. Disorganized attachment disorder is connected to borderline personality disorder later on. Interesting. 
Um, can secure attachment be achieved with a father, a nanny, or a daycare worker in the same way that it can with a mother, in your opinion? A father, yes. A daycare worker, no. Okay. A daycare worker, a nanny, potentially, but not the same as a mother. The reason is, unless the nanny lives with you and is always there and will always be there, that nanny goes home. And it is, um, I guess you could say it is a conditional kind of attachment. And so conditional attachments are not attachments, right? So the concept that uh, nannies come, they go, they leave, they get fired, right? It's a conditional attachment. Um, your husband, or, um, a father, it can be an attachment figure. They have to be educated. You know, I say fathers um, can make very good primary attachment figures, but they really you, you can't do it flying by the seat of your pants because fathers biologically nurture differently, meaning um, they produce much less oxytocin. And when they do produce more of it because they're nurturing their, their child, they're the primary uh, caretaker, they do produce more oxytocin, that love hormone. But in mothers, oxytocin makes mothers sensitive, empathic nurturers. In fathers, it makes them more playfully tactile nurturers, meaning They'll throw the baby up in the, uh, in the air. They'll tickle the baby more. They'll chase the baby around. They encourage more independence and resilience. That is helpful a little later on, mm -hmm. but it's not helpful in the first uh, two years. So by two years, fathers start to tickle and play. And the baby still goes back to the mother for comfort. It doesn't yeah. go to the father. So you'd have to educate a father to be more like a mother. Interesting. Okay. Mm. Um, let's see. What's the next one I have in your opinion, what's the best form of childcare if a mother is required to work? Like she's a single mother or for financial reasons, she has to. The best is kinship bonds. Someone who is related to the baby who's loving and nurturing and sensitive, a grandmother, an aunt, a cousin, someone who's going to be in that baby's life forever, uh, or father. Mm -hmm. Right. So kinship bonds, someone who has a similar investment to that baby as the mother. Next best would be a single surrogate, a nanny, okay. someone who is there uh, all the time as much as possible, consistent, is going to be with you a long time. Um, uh, and then lastly, and I never recommend daycare, ever, ever, ever. Before I would ever recommend daycare, I would recommend sharing a nanny with another mother. If you can't afford a nanny uh, and you're a single mother and you can't afford a nanny, Share a, care, share a caregiver with another mother, with another single mother, mm -hmm. you know, uh, with your next door neighbor. Yeah. And that way that baby is getting the consistency of care that they're not going to get when you throw them into daycare. Daycare is overwhelming. It's overstimulating. It is, um, it, it snips the connections, the, the, the attachment connections, because it forces babies into these group environments where they have transient connections to caregivers. Mm -hmm. um, it's totally instinctually off. Why is it that our country pushes it so much? And like, I have gotten all this pressure from my husband, from other people, like he needs to be in daycare. He needs to be in daycare because he needs so socialization. I've heard that no, so no, many times. No, it, daycare was invented. It was part of the feminist agenda from the 1960s. Uh, Gloria Steinem said, you either choose work as a woman or you are anti-feminist. She literally said that. I she said, it. "You're either you're for the movement and you go out to work, or you're against the movement. Mm -hmm. And that's a bunch of baloney too. Yeah. Um, 
Mary Tyler Moore. You know who Mary Tyler Moore is? The actress. Yeah. 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 Mary Tyler Moore. um, She was asked by Gloria Steinem. You remember she had a show about being a single woman, you know, working out in the world. I can't remember if she was a journalist or whatever. Um, At a very early time in our history, Uh she was on TV doing this, you know, presenting this image of a woman. Um, Gloria Steinem asked Mary Tyler Moore to be the face of feminism. And Mary Tyler Moore said, no. She said, I can't be the face of your feminism because you deny the most important role that women have, which is to be a mother. Wow. And she said, I won't do that. Good for so, her. Um, yep. Yep. So feminism promoted the idea of daycare because it allowed mothers to go out to work full time. Mm, interesting. That's the only reason it was promoted. Um, you know, before that, if mothers had to work, grandmothers took care of their children or yeah. aunts took care of children, right? Uh, family members, and you lived in a house, yeah, with extended family. Now I feel like people like live far away from their families too, which is an added problem if a problem. mom's working full time too. Yeah. So then, then it goes to a nanny, I guess. Yeah. Um, I also but- want to address that question. You had a question though. You said, why do people believe that socialization at such a young age is important? And yeah. the answer is, it's not. That's a myth. That's a myth. That is a myth promoted by, by the establishment who wanted women to go out to work. Even today, our government wants women to go out to work as early as possible. Doubles yeah. the workforce. It's better for the Great economy. Great for the economy. It's better for the economy, right? Everybody makes but, more money if the women are working. The truth is that children don't need socialization under the age of three, what they need is they need one-on-one care from their primary attachment figures. They need playdates. They need places that their mothers go that are social. They can practice with other children. But for the most part, children under the age of three do something called parallel play. They don't Mm -hmm. interact. They sit side by side and play separately and look for their attachment figure to make them feel safe. Yeah. So we're literally driving our kids crazy by putting them into daycare uh, so early because we are forcing them into these group environments that are crazy making for them. And we're also taking their attachment figures away. And like you said, expecting them to act like five or six year olds when they just aren't capable of doing that. Like one of the biggest issues I've had is um, my son will like, he and one of the other boys will get into a fight, which boys are going to fight like that happens. But then I, so they can't discipline them. I've told them like spank my son. Like if he does something that warrants a spank and spank him, and they're like, we legally can't. I'm like, well, what can you do? Put him in timeout. They're like, no, we can't. We legally cannot do that either. So then it, it deals with like, he comes home and we're at the dinner table talking about this altercation. And my husband's like, you go back and you hit that other kid. If he hits you first, you, and I was like, no, you can't tell him to go hit another kid. But then you're trying to explain to a three-year-old when it's appropriate to defend themselves, but then not hit your sister at home. And it just like, it's crazy. It's literally insane well, to think about this conversation. Right. Well, but also, you know, the truth is that we know more about spanking now than we've ever known that spanking basically, uh, you know, it's, children are very sensitive to modeling. Mm-hmm. And if you spank a child, then you're showing them that you can use your body to express things that you need to express with your mouth mm-hmm. and that you need to articulate. So spanking actually promotes more violent aggression in children. So but- if you spank a child and you send them to school, then they're going to go hit a child when it, they're more likely to. That's what the research shows. So do you not agree with spanking? No, spanking is off the table. 
what again, a, what if, about for a kid who will not sit in timeout? So again, timeout is also in question. The, the idea is um, what children really need is understanding. There are two models. Okay. You asked me what's causing this. There are two models. One model is the discipline model. The other model is understanding model. Mm-hmm. And that's not mutually exclusive of discipline, meaning boundaries, limits, all really important, even consequences at times. Um, but punishment is a last resort. So, But the idea is that if a child is, is quote unquote acting out, it means that they're acting out a feeling and an experience that we have no clue about, that they need help regulating their emotions and they need our help to understand why they're reacting the way they're reacting and what they're reacting to. So if you ask your child, why did you do that under three? He's not going to be able to tell you because he doesn't understand. But if you say to him, I play the I wonder game. I wonder if you hit your sister because she took your toy and it made you really angry. You can't hit your sister. Uh, You can tell your sister that you're angry at her and that you don't like her taking your toy. And you can come and tell me if that doesn't feel like enough, but you can't hit your sister. So the concept of helping them, it's called um, secondary regulation, helping them to make sense of of why they're behaving the way they're behaving um, by using your imagination and putting it into words. That's more helpful than just discipline alone. So when we just hit our child or put them in timeout, they don't learn anything. They don't learn how to regulate their emotions. They don't learn anything about themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, All they do is they become afraid of you, but they don't really ever learn how to uh, sort of really regulate their emotions. So what do you do? Well, maybe uh, let me get to my last question. I'm going to circle yeah. back to this. Um, the next question that I had was, oh, are there any other big myths of daycare that we missed? We cover them all. I mean, I think those are the two big ones. Okay. One is it's good. One is it's good for children and it's not. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess that's the biggest myth, right? The biggest myth, yeah. I guess the biggest myth is it's good for children. And then the second biggest myth is it's not bad for children. Yeah. Oh, and one other thing I think you mentioned in your book or maybe an interview or something though, was just talking about the sheer like math of it, the numbers, the ratios are terrible. And so I thought that made terrible. perfect sense to me. Like it's hard for me to take care of my two kids as one person. I can't imagine taking care of seven, three-year-olds at one time. Like that just sounds horrible to me. Um, or, or how about five to seven children under the age of two? Yeah. And how How about five under the age of one, when you have five babies crying at the same time, is everybody getting soothed? Is everybody feeling safe and secure? And the answer is no. Yeah. You're just so busy, like giving bottles and changing diapers. They're, they're totally soothing themselves. Those babies are just left to cry. Yeah. And that's really sad. Um, I think those were the only myths that the socialization one was the big one that stuck out to me. Oh, so my next question is, what advice do you have for a mom like me who's dealing with the consequences of being absent for the first three years? Am I, is there any way to undo the damage that I've done or is it just going to be an uphill battle for me? Oh, there's absolutely things you can do. Um, Everything that you would do in the first three years, you can start to do now. Mm Mm-hmm. So um, much of the repair, the word is repair, much of the repair that you do with children 
is not very different than the original attachment. It's being there as much as you can be physically and emotionally and helping them to process their emotions. I mean, attachment isn't just about making them feel safe. It's also about being the emotional digestive system for children, meaning helping to digest their strong emotions, their sadness, their anger, even their excitement. I don't know if you've ever seen a baby when they're really excited. There's some babies that can't control their excitement and they go, they shake because they're so excited, right? So as an adult, maybe you've had that feeling like you're so excited, you can't come down, you know, that. So you'd say emotional regulation is, is keeping children's emotions more like this rather than like this, right? So, and, and I think the concept is you can start to do that now for them. Um, the other thing is get more comfortable with discomfort, meaning uh, address the discomfort. Don't reject it. Don't dismiss it. Don't ignore it. Say, I can see you're sad. I can see you're angry. I wonder if you're sad because you know, your friend is moving. I wonder if you're angry because your friend broke your toy. Um, I wonder if you're angry because I wasn't home tonight, like I said I would be, and you're mad at me. It's it's really meeting them where they are and not being afraid of of sad, mad, uh, frustrated, uh, all the emotions that we avoid as yeah. parents. Hmm. You know, a lot of parents run out of the house in the morning rather than saying goodbye because they can't bear the discomfort. Yeah. No, I, so, I used to do that. And I one thing yeah. I liked in your book was – and I've started doing this, telling your kids, like, I'm going to leave, but I'll be back in a few hours. And when you come back in, just focus on them and like repairing the relationship. And I've been able to notice a difference definitely in my daughter, my son, maybe not as much, but my daughter for sure. Yeah. Okay. It makes a real difference. It does. Um, okay. On the discipline thing. Mm-hmm. So my son, I, he's not been diagnosed with ADHD or anything like that, but I'm sure if I took him to a doctor, they would say, yes, he probably has something like this. Um, when we're dealing with the discipline issues and he's having these outbursts because he does not know how to regulate the emotions and the stress, do I just let him have the full on temper tantrum in the middle of a restaurant or something and be like, I know you are upset because of X, Y, or Z or because my natural instinct is to take him outside and spank him and tell him to get it together and we'll go back into the restaurant. Is that the wrong way to deal with it? Yeah. So I hate to use right and wrong, but there are better ways. I'll put it that there are better ways to deal with What's it. What's the better so way to deal if with you it? Can get, if you can get over your embarrassment mm-hmm. and you just sit on the floor with him and sit by his side and let him tantrum and just not care, not give two hoots about what people think mm-hmm. and just be with him. And when he lets you give him a, a touch or a hug, if he doesn't let you use your words, sometimes they don't like your words when they're in the middle of a tantrum. A tantrum is, think of a tantrum as a seizure. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen anybody have a seizure? Yeah, I've had some. Yeah. So what they tell you is if you're sitting by someone's side who's having a seizure, you know, you make sure they don't choke, you right. hold their head, you, you know, you make sure that they're safe. That's what you're doing with a child who's having a tantrum because basically they're having an emotional seizure, mm-hmm. right? In its own way, it's a kind of neurological seizure. Yeah. And so you're not going to leave them. You're not going to punish them. Would you punish someone who's having a seizure seizure? No. no. An epileptic seizure? No. So, you know, you just stay with them and you make them feel safe and you say, I, I know. You know, when they let you, you can say, I know this is really hard. It's hard. You're tired and it's, you know, you you don't want to eat supper and and you just want to go home or you didn't get your toy or 
you know, and if not, you just sit with them and you do what you did when they were babies. My mother used to do when I was a baby. I can still remember it. And it's a pre-conscious memory. She would do, ah, baby. No words other than baby. Ah, we use our words as mothers Mm -hmm. to soothe. So even just vocalizing while they're having a tantrum and going, ah, ah, it brings them down. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like a mantra. Yeah. I've been lately, I don't know what made me start doing this, but he was having like a full on outburst one day and I was like, just breathe. And then I'm like, (laughs) and he's doing that. And then he finally calmed down. And so now I'm like trying to get, I'm like, just breathe. That's it. That's it. Just breathe. And I'm going to breathe too. Yeah. Because I'm about to lose my shit on you. (laughs) Yeah. That's right. That's right. So you were both, you were saying. (laughs) Yes, me too. But, but but I guess the point is it's never too late to change the way you do things. Yeah. That's the important thing. If you've been doing it one way and you know, it's not working and you know, it may not be good for him and for you, it's never too late to to switch tacks and say, I'm going to do this differently because that's what repair is. Repair is, you know, admitting that you made a mistake and moving in a different direction. Mm -hmm. I agree. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try the not spanking thing. I'm at home now. So I'm learning how to just be with them and feel the pain and all those things, which is painful for me too. And empathy. Empathy is really, empathy is a a very instinctual thing to human beings, Mm -hmm. which we have from almost birth, you know, we have these things called mirror neurons, which means that when babies open their eyes, if you smile, they smile. Mm-hmm. If they smile and you smile, they smile back. Yeah. So they have this ability to tune into emotions, mm-hmm. which is um, in a very basic way there when they're born. And then as parents, we amplify it by reflecting their emotions, by being where they are. Uh, by mirroring them. And we forget to do that. And if we're insensitive with them, if we reject their feelings, if we ignore them, if we deny them, then what we do is we uh, move them farther and farther away from being able to be empathic. Empathy has to be modeled and it has to be taught. The basics are there when you're born, but it has to be nurtured. If it's not fertilized and nurtured, it it disappears. I can see that for sure. Um... He's in this, he's, he's three now. So he's in this stage where he will say, mommy, are you frustrated? Mommy, are you mad at me? Like he'll ask me these questions. I'm like, so he knows that something's wrong, but then he'll go and just like hit his sister or she'll be crying and he'll just go knock her over or something like that. I'm like, Mac, like if somebody's crying, you can't just go knock them over. And so I see this like clear lack of empathy in him sometimes, but I know that he's capable of understanding if someone else is upset. So I need to work on like making him more. I guess, empathetic towards not just the person that can punish him, but towards everyone else around him. Well, do you have any other words of advice for me? I think it's brilliant that you read a book, you were inspired, it touched something in you, and um, you, you're self-aware enough to want to make changes. And I think that's brilliant. And I think if we could all be that self-aware and be able to look at ourselves and be able to look at our past as mothers and look at how we were raised and what's good and what's bad and what's what was painful mm-hmm. and move forward in a more 
uh, healthier and constructive way. Um, I wish that for all mothers because no mother is perfect. We're not supposed to be perfect. We just want to always be better. Yeah, I agree with that. I do hope that people don't make the mistake that I did though, because I feel like trying to undo it is much harder than if you would have done it the right way the first time. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Erica, so much for your time. I have learned so much from your book. Um, I hope you write another book. I think your book was excellent. Uh, if people want to buy it, I bought mine off of Amazon, but are there other places where you sell it? Sure. Yes. Um, you can go to my website, www.comasar.com, and it, you can access all of the websites that it's sold on. I also did write another book for adolescents. So when your son becomes adolescent, which is 9 to 25, it's called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. So that's the follow-up book to okay. this one. Yeah. I'll get that one too. Um, if people yeah. want to find out more about you, what's the best way to access you? Just your website? Yes. www.comisar.com. Okay. Erica, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. Um, if you guys have any questions or anything, reach out to me on my Instagram. It's lizdurhamtn.com. I'm sorry, lizdurhamtn. And then my website is lizdurham.com. And we hope you join us for the next episode. Have a great day. Being Different with Liz Durham is a Palm Tree Pod co-production. It's produced and edited by Anthony Palmer. Thanks to Emily Miles for digital support. The content for this episode is created by me, Liz Durham.